Mr. Rogers once said, as human beings, our job in life is to help people realize how rare and valuable each one of us really is. That each of us has something that no one else has or ever will have. Something inside that is unique to all time. It's our job to encourage each other to discover that uniqueness and to provide ways of developing its expression. So many of us have been the recipients of an education brought to us by teachers who helped us see how rare and valuable we each were. Welcome to the Tweets and Tonic Podcast. I'm your host, Mandy Asbury. Political hot topics are intertwined in every aspect of our lives, from your streaming channels to your favorite sports teams and even in your pulpits. If you are looking for a cultural commentary on those infamous 280 characters brought to you by the Little Blue Bird, pour yourself a drink because this is the podcast for you. The way our show works is that we will take 10 tweets and break them down and share our thoughts and opinions. Today, my guest on Tweets and Tonic is my friend, Stephanie Germeron. Stephanie is an award-winning public affairs executive with more than a decade of nonprofit leadership experience. She has served as both a staff member and board member to a variety of sports and entertainment, nonprofit, and advocacy organizations, with a primary focus on broadening student access to opportunity pre-kindergarten through college. Over the past decade, she has been active in arts, community, and civic projects across Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, New York City, and the San Francisco Bay Area. She graduated from the University of Southern California's School for Communication, and you can often find her on social media lamenting the latest challenge faced by her favorite sports teams, the New Orleans Saints, Sacramento Kings, Washington Nationals, and of course, her beloved USC Trojans. Now you know who we are and who you will be hearing from today. Please enjoy. All right, Steph, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mandy. I'm excited. Um, We're going to kick it off with a little basketball. You and I and our friendship definitely involves a lot of sports watching when we were in D.C. (laughs) True. So I'm going to start with a team that you probably loathe is a good word for it. Um, We're going to talk about the Warriors. Uh, (laughs) Matt Matt Zimmerman uh, is a former assistant basketball coach at the collegiate level, and he tweeted this past week, tremendous five-year run for the Warriors, five NBA finals in a row. But to go from that to worst team in the league is stunning. Has to be the fastest collapse for a dynasty in professional sports history. Can you think of a faster fall? So (laughs) as a a huge nemesis to the Warriors, how do you feel about their seeming demise? Well, so to be fair, um, (laughs) as you know, I worked in the NBA and I worked for the Sacramento Kings at a time when everyone was grateful for the golden state warriors because they kept us out of last place. (laughs) Um, So this is before the run, right. With Steve Kerr and Steph and all of these um, really great players in this and the now dynasty that he's referring to. Um, And so I've always had a little piece of my heart uh, with the golden state warriors and (laughs) um, actually went to a bunch of playoff games this year. So got to see them, that's impressive. Lose to the Raptors in person, which was awful. Um, yeah. But there's an interesting piece in The Ringer um, uh-huh. that de- uh, deconstructed the collapse of Arsenal. 
okay. um, in the English Premier League and made a whole bunch of comparisons to the Golden State Warriors. Okay. Um, I'm going to pray for uh-huh. Warriors' sake that that is not their fate. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, it is kind of odd to see them only have three wins this far in, understanding that like basically the entire team that's playing right now is right. not not the Golden State Warriors of the dynasty. But no. um but yeah, it, and and interestingly enough, going to those playoff games and posting like little clips or photos um from the games, I found out how much ire there is against the Golden State Warriors in ways I just didn't really understand. I guess when you have a team that might be beaten up on yours consistently over a five or six year period, you start to hate folks, even if they seem like pretty great people. So, yeah, Yeah. um, I, uh, you know, I obviously follow Steph and Aisha and their family on social media. And um, I think his injury obviously plays into a bit of their their season so far, but I also think losing KD will not help them at all. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what comes of the Warriors. Um, you're an LA girl mm-hmm. and the LA times had an article out about mm-hmm. uh, Trout and Bellinger. And mm-hmm. so the tweet is at LA times column Trout and Bellinger deserve MVPs, but fans deserve more in postseason. True or false? <laughs> <laughs> so the guy who wrote that column, mm-hmm. Bill Klaschke, has been a, a columnist for the LA Times since before, like before I came to LA and was in college and worked in sports information. So, um, so he's been around the block. I right. can say I don't always agree with Bill Klaschke. Mm-hmm. He has a particular. Uh, beef with my alma mater um or or he appears to in his coverage of us that said um i don't think he's wrong here yeah um i feel like there these are a couple of guys who have been really remarkable and both teams have have put together pretty good seasons only to collapse either towards the end of the season or in the playoffs Um, as someone who's as much of a Dodger fan as I am a Laker fan, which means not at all, um, I, I have, I have observed Dodger fans in Los Angeles becoming more and more like Laker fans over the last five to seven years, Mm -hmm. um, which is surprising for a group of people who have not been seeing the winning happening or the rings coming from the winning. Let's put it that way. Um, so on the one hand, I appreciate watching the Dodgers just flail <laughs> mightily in in the playoffs, especially against our our friends, the Washington Nationals. But um, yeah, well, but yes. I I do think that there is something to be said for um, needing to be able to put a strategy behind these guys that allows them to actually be competitive for. Yeah, I almost feel like it's turned into a little bit of the Yankees situation where you can pour all this money into a team, but are you getting the results, you know? And I just don't, sure. I, I don't know. I guess we'll see this season with the Lakers too. Obviously they've made, made <laughs> moved. Um, I guess we'll see how that plays out, but you know, the wins matter more than what star dollar you have. I feel like, and I feel like some of these teams and the Dodgers definitely are one that are missing that whole boat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, 
like I said, as somebody who is not a fan, um, uh, it's it, it's been <laughs> you just a hate treat it for them, don't you? To watch them collapse in the playoffs, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I I know I know some very dedicated Dodger fans who feel like they deserve more, and I imagine that they do. Yeah. Yeah, well, I just maybe. hope it doesn't come at the hand. Like, yeah. I hope they don't figure out how to beat the Nationals in the playoffs next year. <laughs> well, as a Cubs fan, I always just plan on losing. And if I win, it's just always a welcome surprise. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to totally shift gears here. And um, you have a pretty diverse, vast background in education and education policy type work. Mm -hmm. So we've got a tweet coming from the founder of uh, Moms Demand Action, Shannon Watts. She tweeted this past week, by blocking the appeal, the Supreme Court decision allows Remington to be found liable for the Sandy Hook school mass shooting. Victims' families are arguing that Remington was negligent because it marketed semi-automatic rifles designed for military purposes only to civilians. So... Obviously, Remington is a gun company. If you're not from the South, you may not be as aware as <laughs> I am. But um, And obviously, the Sandy Hook school shooting was, they're all horrific. But that one being such young children being the victim, kindergartners, is just kind of leaves me speechless. But how do you feel about this ruling? And what do you think it means for school safety and the policy moving forward? Well, um, I'm not a parent, but... I can only imagine what a parent feels like whenever they see a headline of one of these kind of school shootings happening. Mm -hmm. um, I know what educators feel like because they tell me all the time. Um, and so it seems like at minimum, this is an important case to be heard to open the door to, um, to corporate negligence in this way, whether or not there's an opportunity for um, for a ruling in favor of plaintiffs um, is something else entirely, but at least to hear the case, I think is um, this is an important step. And from a policy perspective, I, I mean, heaven only knows, mm -hmm. um, right? I, I don't think anyone would have ever dreamed that there would be a proposal coming from um oh you know a secretary of education to train and arm teachers yeah um right. and that while while i don't think that was an actual serious proposal um it is certainly something that will uh will continue to be discussed when people think about the connection between um, firearms, violence with firearms and um, schools. Yeah. Um, we have gun-free zones around public schools all around America, and that doesn't seem to right. deter um, people from going and shooting up anything, whether it's yeah. a movie theater or a school or that kind of thing. So um, I'm hopeful that this will at least place a little bit of um of a sense of responsibility mm -hmm. around the marketing of um of products in the same way that like some of these vaping companies are now being yeah. um targeted uh for their marketing practices towards young people i think it would be a helpful change to see um gun manufacturers think about 
um, their marketing and and what the the products they are pushing through the lens of having to take responsibility for what happens afterwards. In the same way, we also hold sometimes bartenders liable yeah. for over serving somebody and letting them getting get behind the wheel of a car. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. Um, I actually read an article the other day where somebody was talking about this tweet and they actually said, you know, I wish I could watch a Mad Men episode about this tweet in this mm-hmm. case. But it is true because I do think, like you said, this is this is a marketing tactic too. And, I, you know, as a parent, I, I just can't even wrap my head around the situation. But I know if it were me and those those parents shoes I would definitely be I would knock on the gates of hell until I had an answer and so I applaud that they're taking this approach though because and correct me if I'm wrong on this I just have never really heard or seen something like this from this approach it's always been well we need to pass new gun control legislation or more gun-free zones like you mentioned and this is like a new approach and so I guess time will tell if there's a result from it that benefits us yeah agreed absolutely I mean but I think it's it's an important first step for a willingness to hear the case. Yeah. Um, which, you know, we'll see if, right. it, if it develops anything on the back end, but it will, you know, liability is, um, is a big driver of things yeah. in corporate America. Right. And, and it, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it affects their bottom line in ways that can fundamentally affect um, what they produce and how they market it. So, yeah, um, to be, to be continued, but yeah. I think it's an interesting, it, it'll be an interesting thing to watch for sure. And unfortunately, like the next, uh, the next tweet we have is in reference to the school shooting that happened in Santa Clarita and, um, mm-hmm. Anthony Bresnikan, who's a film journalist for Vanity Fair, tweeted about the NRA and his disdain for them and every gun owner in this country who thinks their hobby is worth the endless nightmare. You drop your kid off in a pilgrim outfit for their Thanksgiving pageant. You never know if you'll see them again. Could be any day, any place. And Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted in reply to that from a parent in Santa Clarita today talking about Anthony. Uh, He said, could be you or me or any other parent tomorrow. It's not right. And then he said, hashtag gun control now. Um, You mentioned gun-free school zones and other zones and areas. um, And you mentioned that obviously it's not really slowed it down. You know, I live in Chicago and (laughs) we've got a a lot of gun-free areas that we still have shootings all day, every day. So what do you think it's going to take to make any change? And are we anywhere closer to it than we were two years ago? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, I try to be an optimist in all things. Mm-hmm. Um, because if I didn't see hope, it would be really hard to continue to persevere in working to um, improve public education for all kids, for example, those yeah. kinds of things. Um, access to opportunity, right? Um, that said, I'm still stunned every day by the fact that we had a Sandy Hook mm-hmm. and the response was to dig in heels even deeper mm-hmm. along ideological lines related to gun manufacturing and gun safety mm-hmm. um, and gun ownership, right? It, it, 
it stuns me. I come from a family. Um, my father was, my father is a Marine. I've learned there's no such thing as a former Marine right. very early yeah. in life. Um, my dad is a proud member of the NRA um, okay. and has consistently encouraged me to learn how to handle and operate a firearm. And I've gotten to the point personally as somebody who is decidedly personally very anti-gun um, that I am going to do that um, at some point in the future just for my own knowledge and safety around firearms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like the, the conversations that my dad and I have often are around this notion of regulation. Right. And I understand my dad's desire to own guns. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that if the position of gun owners um, writ large and the NRA in particular is to keep regulation the way that it is, where it's a it's a state by state issue and you can cross a state line and get something somewhere where you couldn't get it somewhere else. You know, that's a big issue in Chicago. Right. Um, that it will, it will eventually, I believe be the demise of that organization. Um, I, I think the idea of closing up loopholes that are in current law, just seems like common sense. Yeah. Um, being able to restrict, gun ownership um, and forcing registration of resale of firearms and that kind of thing. Those just seem like common sense. Yeah. Um, And yet people are spending billions of dollars on either side of the debate to uh, uh, about these kinds of things and, and to protect the loopholes that currently exist. Um, I don't know. I, I hope that, that we will someday get to a place where we have much stronger regulation than we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, 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 I can't imagine that we don't already have it, frankly, after yeah. everything that's yeah. been happening in yeah. this country over yeah. the last several years. Um, keeping in the education thread, uh, let's switch gears to a little 2020 slash policy convo. Um, the Vox.com tweeted this week that Bernie Sanders wants to raise starting salaries for teachers across the nation, Mm $60,000. Kamala Harris wants to give teachers an average raise of 13, five a year to close a pay gap in public education. So from my public education expert friend, what do you think about all of that? (laughs) Well, as you know me, I'm always going to have kind of a moderately complicated response to that. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> so, so a couple of things. Um, uh, first of all, I wouldn't work in public education if I didn't think being a public school teacher is one of the most important jobs in America. And so I want to be very clear about that. Um, when we talk about the question of how much should a teacher be paid, what we really need to be talking about is how do we get great teachers to choose teaching and not law or engineering or something else, right? Um, The starting salary for teachers in this country is low and and it has been um, the, the purchasing power of that salary over time has not increased with 
the increases in the economy. So um, the average teacher salary in this country is around $60,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Bernie Sanders proposal would do would create a floor, appears to create a floor that would be at about where the median is now. Um, his proposal doesn't describe how he would actually pay for that. Um, so I, I tried to dig in a little bit deeper to figure out the viability of that proposal and not knowing where the funds would come from makes it difficult to figure out. Um, the thing that we need to keep in mind, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. So currently, um, whereas in K-12 education, our student outcomes aren't really great as compared to the rest of the developing world, the developed world, um, OECD member countries, um, our starting salaries for teachers in this country are currently ninth um, among the 30 some odd nations. Hmm. So that puts us well above where our student achievement is. And Bernie's proposal would move us into number two internationally um, to get a $60,000 floor. Yeah. Um, Kamala Harris's uh, proposal is interesting because it wouldn't require like a flat salary across the board, which makes, makes things slightly complicated because a education is a local issue. Mm-hmm. Um, even at full funding, the elementary and secondary education act, which is the law that provides for federal dollars that go into K-12 education, like that, the federal government still contributes less than 10% of any school's budget in the country. So to make a decision in Washington that would have, that would be implemented um, by locales and states who own the bulk of the responsibility for public education mm-hmm. along a teacher salary line seems difficult. But Kamala Harris actually, her proposal, she's has dug in and, and determined how she would pay for it. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting concept where she would basically be leveraging federal dollars as, as an incentive to get states to increase more money for teacher salaries. Um, and it would, you can look it up on her website and it, um, it increases the state, uh, contribution over time. Mm -hmm. So it takes into account that. Living in Mississippi, for example, is different from living in Chicago, both in terms of cost and and all of that. And um, it would force states that um, have made major cuts in K-12 education funding dating back to the previous recession, but have not invested new dollars in, but have chosen instead to, um, to implement like individual tax cuts, mm-hmm. um, for the, the people living in their state. So it would incentivize those states to start pitching more dollars back into K-12 education, which is an interesting proposal. I still wonder how you pull off, um, some kind of a plan at the, um, executive level of government <laughs> in Washington that really is a, a proposal for states and locales. 
Well, and I may be way off base in this, but I think for me, when I was reading through a lot of this, it surprises me a bit that you have two candidates for president here on the Democratic side, but that one of them is suggesting more that the pay for this come from the state level. And to me, that seems like something I would have thought I would have heard from the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I think it will be interesting, um, obviously, with 2020 coming down the barrel at us very quickly. <laughs> um, we're going to shift gears to a little hearing that's been going on lately. I'm sure no one's really heard about it. Um, it's an impeachment hearing. Um <laughs> But it has to do with a lot of other subjects related to the 2016 campaign. And uh, Megan McCain, the daughter of the late Senator John McCain, tweeted this past week, rot in hell, Roger Stone. Uh, And if the listeners are not totally familiar with Roger Stone, he was or is someone that was connected to President Trump and specifically their campaign. And he was found guilty this past week of, I believe, was it seven charges, all seven that he was... um, Mm-hmm. being tried on and um I can't say that I, I can't say that I would have worded it maybe the way Megan did but obviously Roger Stone um was pretty much just a songbird from the WikiLeaks to the Trump campaign but I think it's a much different subject that we're missing just by focusing on his conviction that the Trump campaign knew that this was Roger Stone's role, really. And uh, even Steve Bannon, bless him, um, <laughs> testified to that fact that they knew that they could get whatever they needed from Roger Stone. As somebody who's been around politics for a long time, what effect do you think it's going to have on future campaigns with this trial that Roger Stone's just had and his conviction? Well, um, yeah, I'm glad you didn't ask me specifically about <laughs> Megan McCain's tweet because I, uh, I I probably share her sentiments, but I wouldn't necessarily condone airing them in public <laughs> discourse. But yeah, no, I but I also haven't walked a mile in Megan McCain's shoes either. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the the evidence against Roger Stone was substantial. And almost entirely uncontested from all of the things that I've read on this case. So I have to hope that it creates a sense of um, uh, of asking people to think twice about what they say and do and and how they um, how they portray their uh, their actions when they're under oath. Um, you know, lying to congressional investigators is not something that I would ever recommend someone do. Um, so there's that, but there's also the kind of greater, um, the, the broader implications of, of what happened here. Now, people have to, can, cannot assume that like bad people don't do bad things on lots of campaigns and not just the Trump one. Right. So I think there's there's probably, um, you know, something to be said for hoping that that people will do better and act better yeah. um, moving forward when they see this kind of thing happening. Um, but if we were to suggest that um, this kind of thing has not happened in the past, I mean, there's long wow. evidence in history of 
of um, people trying to manipulate elections and then being less than honest about their actions after the fact. So, yeah, I think um, that the flamboyant personalities involved in this one (laughs) really play a factor into it as well. But you have an interesting perspective as somebody with a journalism background and this policy political background. Do you think in this next election that we're what, like less than a year from now, um, that there will be any changes to the way the media and journalism handles and participates in these campaigns? Man, I hope so. Yeah. Um, you know, I really, I think there are lots of journalists who are trying to do really good work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that needs to continue. But when we look at, independent analyses of media coverage um, of the 2016 campaign. I mean, it was pretty clear that the um, the coverage was benefiting candidate Trump. Yeah. Um, the questions that he got were very different from the questions of his opponents, both in the primary and in the general. Mm-hmm. And there was not a lot of energy or effort um placed on balancing that. And so I do hope that, um, that we are getting to a place where, um, where people are recognizing again, after all of the questions of the veracity of the media, right. And over the last several years that people seem to be coming back and appreciating, um, the, the people who are pursuing truth. Right. Um, and, and while, uh, you know, like, I, I think this has been, this last year has been the New York times most successful in the last, <laughs> yeah. however long. Contrary so, to what um, President Trump says, that would be true. Yeah. 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 So, so I'm hopeful that, that this means that there is, you know, there's still a lot of respect in this country for, um, for the fourth branch. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I hope that they are doing, a, you know, continuing to do the really important job of telling the truth everywhere that it lies. Yeah. Staying with the, the candidates and their education policy, uh, Walker Bragman, who's a freelance journalist and actually a cartoonist, tweeted this week that he actually was correcting an earlier thread that he had started, which I think was actually something a lot of people were confused on. But he said, I'd like to correct an earlier thread in which I wrongly criticized Kamala Harris. Harris has a new bill to provide federal money to a select number of schools to offer year-round programming for kids from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day except for federal holidays. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people were super confused thinking that she meant everyone was going to go to school till 6 p.m. And obviously any kids that saw it were outraged and uh, luckily they're not voters. <laughs> so, um, but you know, there was a lot of parents. I read a lot of working moms like myself who were like, you know, I could get behind something where I'm not having to pay childcare and my kids not yeah. just sitting in daycare, but they get to participate in extracurricular activities like kids at more affluent schools. Um, do you think a policy like this is doable and is it beneficial Yes and yes. Okay. Um, that's the short answer. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, Kamala Harris's bill is recognizing 
the challenge that I think a lot of families have, which is, you know, especially working families where you maybe have um, a single parent or caregiver or both parents having to work and not being home during the hours between school and when, when work ends. And that's a time that we have traditionally talked about, about, you know, protecting young people from, um, from, from vulnerability during that time. And so, and, and you combine that with having an opportunity for, um, continued learning, whether it's, um, after school programs that might be project-based learning environments, might be athletics, might be arts. You think of all of the things that we talk about our schools actually needing and young people needing to be able to thrive and develop into really um, successful young adults. Mm -hmm. This is a great way for the federal government, which has been deemed by the Elementary and Secondary Education Act to have a role in providing extras for vulnerable populations of students, low-income students, students of color, students with disabilities, and English language learners, um, to, that it costs extra to educate them, right, to the same level as a, a more affluent peer. So um, if, we, if we recognize that, which is the basis for federal law in K-12 education, then the government stepping in and creating a funding stream that allows for um, schools that have and school districts that have serve high populations of these students to be able to extend their learning or extend their time in school. Um, it seems like a no brainer. And, and if you look at the numbers, the cost is not that high given what, the the outcomes are when you think about one of the biggest tension between employers and workers is often childcare related right or involved in my kids school related yeah right um this would create an a real opportunity for alleviating some of the financial pressures that families like yours are probably yeah. having thinking about you know finding a a the extra care for the extra time for their child. Um, and then being able to double down and have it be an enriching experience for them and not just like glorified babysitting. Yeah, exactly. That seems like a no brainer. Yeah. And it's so tough to you for parents today. Um, childcare is obviously one of the most important things we're concerned with, but the cost is also one of the most expensive parts of our lives. And, Sometimes we can feel like in our family that one person's working just to pay for childcare and right. And two, sometimes one person is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you just worry yeah. that like, is it even worth what you're paying? And, um, it's tough. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, obviously where this goes from here. Um, flipping back to the, the impeachment hearings, um, Ashley Nicole Black is a former writer and correspondent on the full frontal with Samantha B. And she now writes and acts in a, a black lady sketch show, a show on HBO. Um, I just have to say, I'm not a big fan of Samantha B, but I am using this tweet. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Ashley tweeted, I have my money on someone accidentally confessing to a different crime while being questioned during the impeachment hearing. You know, when I first read this, <laughs> I, I caught the snark um, because that's yeah. sometimes my middle name, but um 
The sad thing is I think that there's a lot of validity and possibility to this being true. And I just wonder, you know, have we ever been in a place like this where God only knows what's going to come out day to day and where do we go in 2020 from here? Yeah, I mean, I feel like sometimes there's a little bit of self-care in avoiding the (laughs) like national media every single day because you just feel like it's one thing after another, after another, after another, right? And then two people who disagree arguing about it for another three minutes. Um, So yeah, but it is, this is... um, in addition to the snark, which, you know, I'm, I have a tendency to be fond of too. Um, there's, there's some truth in this. And, um, and I think as we, as we move into 2020, one of the questions that the American electorate is going to have to make is whether or not this matters to them. Yeah. Right. I mean, that is, we, we know it matters deeply to the Democrats who are in Congress. Um, We know that it matters deeply to political organizers who spend a lot of time on social media talking about it. Um, The question is whether or not it matters that much to the American people. And, and I'm still, um, I'm, I'm not convinced that it won't. Um, I, I think one of the big arguments that I've seen um, around this case is that this is just going to, um, to motivate the president's base even further. Yeah. And while I don't disagree with that, I do wonder how deep the president's base is. Um, yeah, I wonder how deep his base is. I, um, we, we heard this kind of an argument Mm -hmm. before the 2018 midterms and California, even in some of the most conservative districts went blue, Um, which I know people like to say, well, it's California, Mm -hmm. but anyone who says that hasn't spent a lot of time here because while the urban cities are quite progressive Mm -hmm. and, and lean heavily Democrat, the rest of the state, which is, the majority of the state is not. Um, and so when you have, um, like California 10, my home district, which, um, is in the central Valley of California turning blue, that should be an indication that, that the party, the Republican party has a problem. Yeah. And I think, well, I think the Republican Party has a lot of problems that they're choosing to ignore, but I think that they have a lot of problems that are they don't have time for because of this impeachment inquiry, because you do have no clue what's going to come out the next day. I don't feel like, and I even feel like for the candidates that are running against President Trump um, and against each other right now until they have a nominee, I don't think anyone's able to completely focus on policy, things like this education policy stuff that we've been talking about. Nobody has a time for that now. It's not getting the sound bites and it's not, people are so consumed with the hype and the drama around this inquiry. Not that it shouldn't be happening, but it's like everything else has kind of gone to the wayside. And so I think that will prove to be important in November as well. Um, Mm -hmm. When you are spending all of your time responding to something, you can't be 
on offense telling people your story. There isn't a political candidate or a politician in America who wants to spend all of their time responding to the news of the day and not being able to share their vision for the service that they want to provide the public. So yeah, to, to you, you've hit the nail on the head, regardless of, of, of where people fall on whether or not this impeachment trial or hearing should be moving forward. Um, the reality is that it is distracting from a whole lot of substantive, um, policy conversation that there just aren't enough hours in the day to be doing all of them. Um, that said, I I think there are a lot of people who would argue that this impeachment hearing is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you'll kind of see the separation in these candidates, especially obviously on the democratic side where there's more candidates running. (laughs) Um, but I think you'll start to see the separation. Too many. Yeah. Um, I think you'll see the separation between those that are completely focused on Trump and his impeachment inquiry and those that are still trying to push policy. Um, I, th- I think of people like Andrew Yang and Mayor Pete that I think are really talking about a lot of policy where a lot of people may not be. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, you know, a whole debate on how you want to campaign. But in that same light, um, Eli Lake, who is a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, uh, tweeted, does anyone besides Adam Schiff think Trump's mean, crude, and stupid tweets today constitute, quotation, witness intimidation? Um, and if you don't know, if the listeners don't know what this is about, um, President Trump tweets a lot. And <laughs> um, this past week during the hearings, uh there were several ambassadors that were giving testimony about the Ukraine situation and the president was watching like most of, or a lot of America was as well and was tweeting, calling into question a lot of the actions and words and character and integrity of some of these people. And as somebody who has worked in government before, you know, there's a big difference obviously between a political appointee and a government appointee. How do you think this mm-hmm. situation currently affects those who are actually working in government? I, I think it's difficult. Um, you are talking about people who have dedicated their lives to public service and who are sharing their experiences under oath um, yeah. and being tweeted at in real time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by by a a president who has arguably um, kind of set his list of like friends and enemies um, and, um, and, and thinks of things in that way or, or appears to anyway, I don't want to be putting words in his mouth for sure. Um, There's, there's the question of also like reading a tweet in real time that someone who is currently testifying has not seen, right? That's... Yeah, that was another question I had. Did you think that was appropriate for Adam Schiff to do that? To read that aloud to the ambassador? Um, I don't, I I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I, I don't know how it, um, I don't know how it advanced the conversation. Yeah. Um, in the hearing, but, um, there's, but do I think it's witness tampering? I'm not a lawyer, but 
its shirt seems to fit the legal definition of witness tampering. Um, And legal experts seemed to side with, um, with it being witness tampering, which is an impeachable offense. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's just go ahead and have maybe another hearing about that. Um, But, but yeah, so I, um, I, I, I don't know how, I don't imagine that it would have necessarily affected anyone's testimony because they wouldn't have like, like Jovanovic, for example, wouldn't have known of the tweet while she was on the stand. Right. Had it not been read to her. Yeah. Um, so I also, she strikes me as being quite a tough cookie and probably is not intimidated any way, shape or form by anything anyone puts on a tweet. Yeah. But that is me making a judgment about somebody I've never met before. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah. Well, something you do know a little bit about is journalism. Uh, <laughs> and this week, uh, John Nolte, who is a freelance journalist who does appear frequently on Breitbart, which is not a endorsement of their publication, but tweeted this week, Fox News is becoming CNN's emotional little sister. Um, obviously this presidency and this administration has, um, been one of the more hostile with the media would be probably a mild way to put it. Mm -hmm. But how do you, how do you think a journalist does their job today and how should they do their job today in light of this type of berating that constantly happens? I think it's gotta be really tough. Um, when you are, and, and makes the work that much more important. Um, because, and makes the process of sourcing information that much more important. Um, when you have, uh, an administration that is publicly attacking the press and let's be fair, presidents have had a long history of not loving the media, um, and not liking their media coverage. So the it's the direction of the conversation that has become fundamentally different in this administration. Right. Um, and how that's being handled and really unprecedented, um, in, in ways that, that, that I fear simply because once something becomes normal, like if it's normal to just box out the press, yeah. If it is normal to just not answer questions on the record, if it is normal to force um, reporters to have to go to all all sorts of lengths in order to be able to make open records requests and get the information that they're seeking or being able to find, you know, develop and find sources that allow them to continue to do the reporting on the policy work that's going on in Washington. I think that's, that's, it's troubling um, to say the least, but there are lots of news organizations that are trying to rise above that. Unfortunately, we have a lot of news organizations that are also playing straight into the entertainment side of news rather than the news side of news. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. All right. With that, Thanks for coming on the show today, Steph. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
Today, we would like to honor the work that is being done by the Mentoring Center in Oakland, California. The Mentoring Center exists to move all youth, whatever challenges they are facing, toward healthy, successful lives by providing support, love, and opportunities for self-mastery. The Mentoring Center is a nationally recognized resource that creates and influences policy, builds the capacity of others serving youth through training, and develops and disseminates transformative mentoring practices and tools. Founded in 1991, the Mentoring Center was created to serve as a technical assistance and training provider for the Bay Area Mentoring Programs. TMC has served more than 800 mentoring programs in its 16 years of operation in the Bay Area. As a result, TMC has worked with more than 25,000 youth and volunteer mentors. The Mentoring Center provides technical assistance and training to approximately 50 to 85 mentoring efforts and direct mentor training to 1,700 to 2,500 volunteers and program staff annually. As a direct service provider, TMC serves between 90 to 130 educated and incarcerated youth between the ages of 14 to 25 annually through two intensive mentoring and intervention efforts, the Transition Program and the Transformative Manhood Group. To learn more about this incredible organization, please check out mentor.org. Mr. Rogers said, It's really easy to fall into the trap of believing that what we do is more important than what we are. Of course, it's the opposite that's true. What we are ultimately determines what we do. Here at Tweets and Tonic, we hope that you find what your soul loves. We've definitely found our passion here with podcasting in this community, and we appreciate so much your faithful downloads and sharing and hope you will continue. We will have an episode airing on Thursday, which we know is Thanksgiving. So if you don't tune in on Thursday and catch it later, we totally understand and we hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving with your friends and family. And please know how grateful we are this year for you, our listeners. Cheers, y'all, and go do some good.